to do oh, is it, what's this podcast about joe we're, we're doing workshop technique here. oh yeah yeah no, that's this 100 percent. yeah i'm gonna rename it excellent <laughs> workshop advice with dave greg and joe flakes <laughs> float out of the sky almost too light to fall Hello and welcome to the second episode of Classical Music Now by No Dice Collective. I'm Joe Chesterman-March and today I'm chatting with composer David McFarlane and writer Gregory Kearns on their 2018 collaboration about the Christmas apocalypse, which all stemmed from a set of small bells that David received in a Christmas cracker set. As well as talking about the piece itself, we talk about community workshops, how to lead one and also struggling to take our own advice from the workshops we lead and apply them to our own creative processes we talk about emotion and gender our own struggles or hang-ups about writing overtly emotional work and why that might be why we might have those kind of struggles plus find out what jay diller and beethoven have in common and take part in our own interactive podcast workshop exercise i really would love to to hear what you come up with but um, stay tuned to to find out what that game is so, without further ado, here is Gregory Kearns talking about his day job and shortly after, the workshop that got him in there. Where do you work, Greg? Uh, I work at a place called The Brain Charity in Liverpool. Mm-hmm. Um, they are an organisation that helps people with neurological conditions and that's like quite a broad, like the kind of help they give is quite broad. Uh, and the, the way I ended up getting a job there was when I was in uni, I went and did a poetry workshop with them for... I think it was like six weeks or something. And then mm. I stayed friends with one of the volunteers on Facebook and then they posted the job that I have now. And then I ended up applying for it. Uh, okay. It wasn't like a like a brain charity poetry workshop. No, it, it was like we were at uni and we had to do like a module. It was called like Writers at Work. Mm. And it's kind of, you do things that are kind of like related to writing, but not actually writing yourself. So it could be like poetry workshops with a specific community interest group sort of thing was uh, the framework okay. we were working off. And then... Yeah, we ended up doing it. It was really good. You have this kind of like, in retrospect, horrible idea. Like, we're going to go in, we're going to cure these people <laughs> of their neurological conditions with our poetry workshop. Yeah. And then you go in and go, what on earth was I thinking? Yeah. <laughs> we're just writing poems. Yeah. Um, Did you find you had this plan that you were going to have for the day? And then you got in and you're like, oh, actually, we're going to do like a third of this. Uh, definitely. I think, so there was two of us doing it. And what we tend to do is... Tasha, who I was working with, she would come up with the plan and it was really useful to have too many poems to look at or too many exercises to do because otherwise you'd just finish everything and twiddle your thumbs. Mm. And then quite often there would be bits where I'd present it so we'd like shift what we were doing either... Because I think what a bit important thing of like running workshops is like actually listening to what people want in the room. So if someone really gets into one exercise you're doing and you only plan to do it for like five, ten minutes, then you extend that to half an hour because they're responding to that more than if you just pressed on with your workshop agenda. And yeah, thing, yeah. Because so. like, what's the point, you know? Yeah. What's the point of like just sticking to the schedule when actually they're really mm. getting into something? Yeah, I yeah. Because you, you do lots of kind of uh, outreachy workshop type stuff, don't you, Dave? Yeah, I do a lot of uh, a lot of music workshops uh, with young people and in prisons and in secure units. And it's very similar. I always, well, I remember the first couple of times I had to lead a session on my own in a prison. I, I, like, I wrote out every single word really? that I was going to say, like literally an entire script for myself. But knowing I wouldn't stick to it, mm. but it, it gave me a lot of peace of mind to be like, right, at least, <laughs> at least I I've thought enough about what I might say, so that what I actually say will have some thought behind it. Because, like you said, it never goes to plan, mm. and that would be kind of like you said, Joe, against the aims of the workshop because it's got to be like participant led. How do you go about doing participant-led workshops? Because we went to that Manchester Camerata workshop together. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was really impressive. So yeah. the, inst- the instruments were all just on a table in the middle of the room. And all the participants, we were kind of, at the time, they were all workshop leaders in training, not people with dementia as it would be. Uh, in a, they, Everyone was signing a circle around the instruments. And so the participants just could go up and like, pick an instrument, whichever one they wanted. And everyone just kind of made noises until... And the workshop leader kind of just started going around and sort of playing along with people and just kind of very gently shaping the overall sound that was being made until it, it kind of felt like suddenly, oh, we're all playing a piece of music together. It was quite amazing, really. Mm. I really like that style of doing it. Yeah. 
And it was really fun as well. I remember so we were fun. both saying like, we should do this. Like, this should be like a weekly meetup. <laughs> yeah. Just like pile a percussion, just make something old, up. Like. Do a big old jam every week. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but it's different with songwriting stuff because a lot of the work's with young people. So one project I do is with a charity called TIP, which stands for Theatre in Prisons and Probation Units. And we do work with young people in secure institutions and kind of the 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 form that takes is that um we got five days we write songs with the young people for the first three days there's a performance on the fourth day and then Mm. we kind of round up on the friday so we just kind of let them at it and do quite a similar thing we just let them play what they want and do whatever and then we try and gently nudge them into making it into a song and as much as possible it's participant led so we try and build on maybe a riff or a chord sequence that they come up with themselves and try and um, encourage them to develop that as much as possible. But then I guess the reason that we're there is that we ideally know how to do these things. And it's the same with the lyrics. So one really good exercise that we did, um, I think with the lyric writing, it's very similar. We, we try and get, get it led by them. But a lot of teenagers, if you say to them, write a poem, aren't really keen. I'm going to do it with Greg now. So we got an exercise. <laughs> if you make it more of a logic thing, mm. yeah, then that's a really good way, I think, of getting people into it. Like, Greg, you do poetry watches all the time. You must... Yeah, I've done... Um... Oh, I thought you were going to like do it now. No, yeah, I'm going to do it now. Okay. Oh, what Greg's exactly. oh, well, I'm, and I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Um, I mean, that sounds like a really good way. The kind of stuff I've done in the past with poetry workshops, like we kind of came up with all the stuff beforehand. I mean, like... I haven't done loads of them recently, um, but at the time we kind of came up with all the stuff ourselves and then we came in and went, today we're going to write, this is a poem about food and why it makes you happy. Let's write a group poem um, and let's take a line each. And actually, I think I probably wouldn't run it like that now because at the time I think we were compensating for a sort of uh, an anxiety for feeling like we didn't know what we were doing. Whereas like now... I probably feel more comfortable. I don't know, not not winging it at all. I'd probably still come in with like mm. poems and stuff to look at prepared beforehand. But one of the most successful bits of workshops I have ever like led in the past was I was doing. I can't remember what age children were, but they were sort of I think primary school age, and we were at a festival in I want to say I think it was Bridlington Poetry Festival, and they come in and. I, I think I'd happened to hear some sort of uh, poetry workshop led by Ian McMillan on the radio a couple of days beforehand. And it was towards the end of the workshop and the lunch bell had gone off, but we weren't sticking to whatever bell system they had like got at this building. It was, we were running on like 15 minutes after the bell, but because the bell had gone, it was near lunchtime. They, that sort of process, they're all obsessed with lunch. And so I kind of just on the fly decided to do, it was nothing to do with what we were doing, but decided to do this sort of group poem about lunch based on this um, workshop I'd heard Ian McMillan do on the radio. And it kind of worked much better than anything else I'd done because it was kind of like just responding to actually what was happening in the room rather than trying to get them interested in what I'd come with. Mm. They were interested in something and then I was kind of bringing them towards the poetry rather than the other way around, which I think... Like if you're talking about something they're interested in already, that mm. yeah, they're on board with yeah. it already, rather yeah. than you having to kind of convince them that this is, you know, uh, something interesting or something mm. like cool. And I guess it's it's like a different kind of imagination. Mm. You're not thinking about somewhere else. You're thinking about how do I feel right now? You can kind of engage with yourself much more. There's much more stimulus yeah. if you're able to tap into yourself in that situation. I think also like to to go like real big ideas here. like art is essentially just like reframing the world in like all it's that's quite vague but like <laughs> like you're reframing things so essentially if someone's interested in something in the now you go oh how would you distill that interest into one one line of a poem mm. don't worry about rhyming or any sort of technique just say and one of the ones that really stuck with me i just said finish this sentence i'm hungry as a and they went i'm hungry as a someone said i'm hungry as a goat and someone said i'm hungry as an xbox fan and that (laughs) one really stuck with me partly because you're like you've taken and they haven't sat there really agonizing about like what simile do i use for how i feel hungry they've just kind of gone i'm hungry as a oh i play xbox there's a fan on an xbox like i'm hungry (laughs) as an and it's just like such a brilliant simile for all sorts of reasons and that's just like there's not some 
deep searching that's gone into that line, but it's come out with like a great, it, like you've reframed two activities there. Like, are you are you ever able to kind of apply that to your own process, your own working? Um, yes. Correct answer. <laughs> I'm glad. Um, yeah. So I think um, quite often I, my kind of style of working, which I try and fight is like really sort of consciously sort of struggling with like intellectual stuff <laughs> like I go oh I want to touch on this intellectual idea and I want to sort of use this framework and I've seen this symbol that would be interesting for it and like a more recent process I've gone through is like I decided to write nine line stanzas um, that work in isolation and the line length has to be the smallest, smallest unit of sense that I can make that really allowed me to not sort of get in my own way because I find that occasionally that I've I've tried to do these ideas or do this specific thing that like I've got in my own way of what the poem itself wants to say or whatever. It's very similar with with music stuff. I find when I'm when I'm doing workshops, I really enjoy it and I think it really does add to my own music because there's just more of a sense of it being very immediate and I'm like I'm going to make this music now and it doesn't matter what it is really. I've just got gotta get it out mm. it's also that. playful i think yeah i mean for for you like seeing stuff that i've seen you do like you've got that camera thing where you just make a body position and it translates it into music that feels quite a playful oh, process yeah the head theremin yeah um, yeah i mean Ooh. i think i really like playing i've not heard of this the head theremin yeah uh how um, does it work so cool. <laughs> so cool i found i found uh some software that tracks your head yeah. Um, the, the X and Y positions of all your features. Yeah. So I just connected that up to a theremin. So if you move your eyes up, the pitch goes up and you move left and right, <laughs> the dynamics change. Hence Ooh. the head theremin. But I think being playful is really, really important in, in all sorts of things. I think Kath Snow, who's a drama facilitator, is really big on this and learn a lot from her about actually just playing around with things is really important. And it's a great way to get creative ideas out. And I think a lot, a lot of academic music training is all about what you were saying before like having very rigid logical ideas and theories behind things and systems which is really useful i think really important but that's not really for me a way of writing music that i that i really resonate with or enjoy it's it's good to have it going on somewhere but if you only have that you don't have the kind of the more subjective thing going on at the same time you've just got a, a big a big logic puzzle mm. and there's not no no human I often find that really hard to square as well when you've got this like because you're thinking and thinking and thinking and I I quite enjoy that process actually one piece I wrote basically entirely in that way and that that went really nicely but I've had other times when I'm thinking quite uh, like theoretically yeah. like I had this piece for double choir where one was classical and one was gospel and the lyrics were like they were taken from Kanye West songs to like mapped onto the crucifixion <laughs> as you do. Wow. Um, but like, there are all these spinning wheels and like, it was really hard to just try and keep everything in mind all the time when you're trying to structure it out yeah. because each piece of the puzzle has its own direction in a way. And it's each kind of like meaning that you've imbued it with yeah. that it might actually not have in the end mm. and like trying to then, get all of those different trajectories in on top of each other it then, can be a real struggle without just like putting it together and like moving into that playful mode and yeah you know it's more like trial and error at that point i think but i think you've got to get both i always think about um you ever read any 33 and a third books so they're like really small books and they're all on one specific album and they've got an anthology called um how to write about music and one of the the essays in there is about donuts which is jay diller's last mm. album that he wrote when he was when he was dying it talks about like late style which is a big thing in like classical studies and like edward said i think and adorno wrote about it quite a lot about about beethoven they talk about beethoven they talk about how beethoven's late string quartets everyone's like oh these are so weird and strange and com complicated but also very like emotionally invested and very powerful mm. but kind of confusing if you come from the point of view of analyzing a normal string quartet right but what they say is that like at that point what makes them so good i think one of the arguments says if i remember rightly is that beethoven at that point had kind of mastered all the objective stuff which is all like the technical stuff and like how do i write a string quartet what is a string quartet form what is the perfect string quartet that i can write and the subjective stuff which is like how can i express myself mm. in a string quartet 
and then the argument is that when people get to the, like the late stage of their life they've got both those things together uh, okay um, yeah. so you've got kind of like the technical mastery that i think doing very technical exercise and, and academic training and and you know thinking about and reading books and things like that can give you but also the subjective stuff which is actually like how do i relate to these sounds and what do they mean and how can i put them together in a way that's coherent but he taught us about donuts it, um <laughs> which is such a great album i could talk for hours about donuts and he kind of argues that it's the same thing there and i think about that quite a lot whenever i'm like oh this is too technical or like oh this is too uh untechnical i'm always like just gotta wait it out <laughs> yeah <laughs> give, give it another just... 20 30 years it'll, it'll work itself out i'm sure <laughs> yeah i suppose that, that applies to lots of things though doesn't it when you it's that whole idea of you just kind of try and keep doing it isn't it it's yeah. like i often think about like when i started freelancing and doing these kind of workshops that we were talking about but in more of a choral context i was like taking community choirs and i was not good <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah and like i you know I, I owe it to the people who kept coming back and stuck with me mm. for sticking it out until i was up to a kind of uh a standard of sorts it's an interesting demonstration of market economics acquire <laughs> if you're if what you're selling i.e me is not up to scratch you kind of you lose members initially yeah. and then you kind of reach this equilibrium point where people might be leaving because they've you've got other commitments and you know it's always hard to kind of maintain a class um whatever it is but other people are coming back and you know you've got to a certain skill level which is nice to see, but I had to just trust that that would happen at some point when I was yeah, yeah starting out. I think it's really important to to give people the space to mess up as well because mm. I think that's such a an important way people learn and being able to give. So I think in in a lot of workshops that I've done, often like the first portion of it, when people just get on instruments they have this attitude of like oh i can't play this because what if i play a wrong note or what if i you know yeah do it badly and kind of a big part of it is about saying actually it's fine it doesn't nothing it's fine nothing bad will happen <laughs> the only reason that people are good at instruments is because you've made a lot of mistakes mm. like a lot of mistakes yeah and i guess not everyone i suppose has the same access to spaces in which they can make mistakes and the time to make the mistakes and the time well. to make the mistakes too yeah which i think is why those kinds of projects are often very good for just giving people a way in i think a lot of especially in sort of educational institutions and all that kind of stuff quite often the worth of learning something is measured on its utility mm. and uh, obviously like there's loads of studies about why creativity is really important to human beings and why there's a very good case for saying that creativity is very useful mm -hmm. but i think that's n in those situations if I, if I play this maraca well in this workshop, that's not necessarily going to lead to being able to stay out of prison or pay for food or whatever. So there's this association of like, we, we don't encourage that sort of useless skills, information in schools maybe, or just in, in our culture in general. So then that anxiety of being, of spending time on with an instrument or something like that, I think, or with writing or any sort of creativity, I think, that anxiety builds and our want to do it reduces so then yeah. i think that that's why i think one of the big successes of doing those sorts of workshops is going like essentially it doesn't matter like yeah <laughs> yeah and even when like you're quite unquote good at something mm. there's a lot of time that people don't see where it's still just like absolute crap that yeah. it's just not it just isn't the thing that it ends up being yeah i think um, um i'm not i'm not a huge john mayer fan personally but mm. I, um, he's got some funny videos though, isn't he? I mean, he's... he's well, this is what I'm going to say, actually, because I, I saw a talk that he did where he was talking about it was a really important part of his career when he looked at Bob Dylan's success and failure and he noticed it was basically like a sine wave. So, like, you would just mm. do really well and like then do terribly and, and then do really yeah. well and then do terribly. And so, like, like you said, kind of just failing a bit, people don't take into account the amount of failure that happens before someone gets good and john mayer's really taken that to heart and uh <laughs> he fails fails a lot in in music no, in he's life. Got an incredible... but then he's got some hits you know <laughs> there's an incredible video of him and alicia keys performing and i think uh is it quest love from the roots oh yeah it's those three performing i think it's just like a live performance outside in new york or something and it's absolutely incredible yeah i love that video he's, so he's much. very very good mm. actually should we 
Should we do that exercise? Yeah, go for it. Or maybe if the if the listeners at home want to play along too. <laughs> yes. Joe, do you want to play too? Oh, yeah. Yeah, let me get oh, a great. pen. Get a pen. Um, while Joe's getting a pen, if anyone's listening wants to go and grab a pen, this is... <laughs> this is prime time for is, pen grabbing. This is what we were talking about. Get involved. Make some, make some art. Make a poem. Can you... Can listeners at home hear Joe <laughs> making pen noises? <laughs> <laughs> we have pad. We have pen. So this That's exercise... Piece of paper. It's pretty short. It's, I learned it from Matt Hill. He was a very excellent musician and workshop leader and a lovely man so what i want you to do is think of any word that you associate with christmas just one word and just write it down well it's it's because i've read greg's poem for this piece recently (laughs) (laughs) it's a little bit dark dark. (laughs) um and then write down a word that rhymes with that word you got it and then write down a word that starts with the same letter as your first word. Any word. I don't want to. I'm going to keep talking because we've got dead air. <laughs> keep it moving. Oh, okay. God, I couldn't think of any words for getting <laughs> that letter. And then last one. Uh, any word that starts with the same letter as your second word. Any word. <laughs> Greg looked really struggling to think of the word. <laughs> so, um, so Greg, what have you got? Give us your four words. Uh, pine, time, place, trick. Oh, very nice. And Joe, what have you got? I've got death, fresh, dream, and fruity. Great. De- death being my Christmas word. <laughs> <laughs> uh, good, okay. Uh, <laughs> so now what we need to do is write them out in this order. Um, three, one, four, two. Three, one. Four. I just wrote three, one, four, two. <laughs> in the order of three, yeah, one, the four, two. The, the, the words you got, the three, one, four, two. Okay. And uh, if all's gone to plan, you should have a little poem. Greg, what have you got? Okay. <laughs> Place pine, trick time. Yeah, very good. good Joe, what have you got? <laughs> Dream, death, fruity, fresh. Oh, that's <laughs> nice. So you'll notice that by doing that, you trick people into writing a poem because mm. the first line alliterates and so does the second line. And the second two words alliterate, mm. which obviously isn't necessary for a poem. But if you do that, people look at it and they're like, ah, oh, yeah. I've written a poem. It yeah. sounds like a poem. It looks like a poem. That's pretty good. And then you say like, oh, can you maybe expand those sentences so they make a bit more sense? Um, I'd just like to request that the listeners send in their own versions of this yeah, poem. Yeah, that'd be so at, good. At ND Collective, that'd be great. <laughs> On Twitter. <laughs> Dream yeah. Death Fruity Fresh. Yeah, if anyone wants to send, send some I'm in. Proud of that. Sounds like a chewing gum advert yeah, in yeah. a parallel time. No Dice Fruity Fresh coming soon, just on you. <laughs> Branching out yet again. <laughs> yeah. Too much going on. <laughs> the No Dice conglomerate continues to dominate the world of chewing gum <laughs> and Dice Limited. <laughs> Flakes float out of the sky, almost too light to fall. Settle in sheets of grey, ground and sky inseparable. It's so silent, all sound drunk up by the wind. The few trees left are brittle and naked, bent to the ground. The shadows of their branches look like withering mistletoe. I draw a Christmas tree on the floor in the dust my index finger marking out its bark and branches, dotting baubles amongst its pines, wisps of my hair coming out in clumps, becoming tinsel, decorating the home. My gums bleed, all but one tooth fallen out. They line up into a babyless nativity. It is just like Christmas, but... Christmas Eve, I sing five-part harmonies to every carol that I remember, hit the high notes in Silent Night just right. I write myself a Christmas card, lay it at the end of my bed, by which I mean my sleeping bag. I lay awake most of the night, listening out for sleigh bells. In the morning, I open my card, I make Christmas dinner, 
prepare the turkey, by which I mean rat on a spike. I cut the tumours out, put seasoning on, and by seasoning I mean when I eat it I close my eyes and imagine it's turkey. I break the tiny wishbone by myself, close my eyes and wish for someone to pull a cracker with, someone to read me the silly jokes. In the evening, I walk my Christmas meal off. I see a man trudge out of the fog in the semi-distance, his chest broad and hair long, matted and shiny. His skin is tumulus, wishbone wish granted perhaps. I gather Christmas paraphernalia, all the things meant for sharing, and I bring them to this stranger, lift my prized Christmas cracker. It takes the weight of two hands pulling in opposite direction, the cardboard stretching and breaking and the... But I don't. I don't go to him. He doesn't see me, disappears, the smog too thick, wraps him back up, regifted to the vast, empty world, and I am alone again. I wander back home, my perfect boot prints, a path in the ash, my final tooth wobbles from my head, tiny in my palm. I place it in a makeshift manger, a bent tin can lid, completing the nativity scene. I've got these Christmas bells that we kind of, my family got in a set of Christmas crackers. Yeah, so they sound very twinkly and quite Christmassy. They're all out of tune with each other. Um, so, And you actually got them in a Christmas cracker. Yeah, they all come from Christmas crackers. I don't think I realised that before, that they came from Christmas crackers. They came no, from Christmas crackers. I, just, yeah. I saw that on the score. I was reading the score on the way here. And I was like, no. Yeah, Christmas no. crackers. That's a bougie Christmas cracker. Isn't it? Is it? Oh, yeah. Bougie <laughs> ass. Um, <laughs> so we just always had them lying around the house. And like when we started thinking about what to do for the piece, I thought that these were quite appropriate because they do sound like in terms of the tone of them and in terms of, um, you know, what we associate with Christmas, very like mm. Christmassy. But they're also like a bit out of tune and a bit like they don't quite fit together. Um, and I thought it'd be interesting to try and get the the performers to to just play the bells, basically. So all of the all of the ensemble had their own bell. Um, and also, there's like a really long history in electroacoustic music, especially, and kind of academic composition of using bells and analyzing bells. Oh, that's like Jonathan Jonathan Harvey, I think. Um, some of the first spectral stuff was all about bells. I think what's mm. Jonathan Harvey's piece? He he wrote one about. I think he analyzed the 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 tonal content of like a really famous bell, and then used that to write a piece. Mm. Um, so I was kind of thinking about that. I just thought it would be interesting to try and explore that in a way that does. I guess what we were talking about before, kind of using all that technical stuff, but trying to use it for a uh, an emotional purpose, which is Christmas apocalypse, which is <laughs> the most emotions anyone can think of. It's pretty heavy, yeah. yeah. So it's the idea that the instruments are kind of doing that same thing where you've kind of got less like the spectral structure of the, the Christmas cracker bells, but the notes of them, and then the instruments come out of that in a way. Was that kind of started like that. Yeah. So I actually did some, did I did start off trying to do a spectralish piece. Mm. So spectral, spectral music is where you, so every, every note that we hear is kind of made up of lots of little notes that kind of are on top of the notes sort of. Mm. Um, it was the reason why a flute sounds different to a piano because all of the, overtones. The, the overtones, yeah. yeah. So the spectrum of the, of the sound, which is what the overtones are, is different. And by looking at what those notes are and making instruments play them, that's how you're right what is called spectral music yeah like clarinets have like every other overtone for instance which is why they sound quite mellow which i find quite interesting yes yeah yeah, yeah. stuff like that which is super interesting yeah. um which i only found out in the process of doing this because you explained this to me uh, and i went afterwards i went oh of course that makes sense yeah we're not here like the note we're hearing isn't all of the note you know in a way yeah. but like i'd never actually put proper mm. thought or knew knew that and no it it's, really it's one of those things about music that like when you hear it, it's like, oh, that makes total sense. But I think pe people tend to hear music as something that's very mysterious and magical. Whereas um, actually a lot of it you could explain, unfortunately. Sorry, everyone. Um, <laughs> not that I would like to. That's a different conversation. So like the original, the first workshop that we did, 
that was more of a spectral thing because I'd put I'd played the bells into a spectral analyzer mm. and worked out what what pitches were prevalent and tried to make the instruments play those and i went away deeply unsatisfied yeah. with how it sounded <laughs> i don't know if i'm just not a good enough spectral composer or if i just didn't have time to do it as is often the case with writing music well i don't know how uh, sonically rich your christmas bells are i imagine they don't have that many overtones because they're all quite high aren't yeah, they they're not, they're well, not like usable overtones it was a nice idea but i ended up, <laughs> I ended up scrapping after that workshop i really yeah. i find no i'm getting better but i don't find workshops the most comfortable place to be mm. really um did it feel a bit exposed yeah, yeah. so yeah, like a participant yeah, so w- workshops where you, you've written a piece and you take it to the ensemble to rehearse and then you discuss it and then they give you feedback on it. It's, um, I don't know, it's, it always works out fine, but it, it does feel very exposed, like you said. It's like, oh, I've made this thing. Tell me what's wrong with it, please. It's like, <laughs> um, yeah. I don't know, it, uh, but it depends on the ensemble as well because I guess I would feel better doing it now with no dice because I know quite a few of the players. But at the time I was like, I don't know any of these people. Just play my thing. I don't even like it myself. Give it a go. (laughs) I think that's a big thing about that kind of space is knowing people um, is a huge help in sort of having a conversation about what what what's going on with a piece and I found that with like poetry. There's some people that I give my poems to because I um, not only do I value what they're gonna say on a sort of just on a basic level but on i like i trust that they're not gonna go oh yeah this is good when actually they're thinking oh this thing isn't working or and i think that's such a important part of that kind that type of workshop yeah and i i wonder if if for music workshops where it's kind of a rehearsal setup if maybe it was approached more along the lines of of the works we were talking about before i feel like if, if i knew the instrumentalist a bit mm. better i felt like we we're all part of the same group if we played a name game if we played a name game yeah. at the start things might be more comfortable for everyone because i think the point of workshops is that you can say to the players like oh what do you think i should do for this bit or do you think this is correct have i written this right could mm. this be better is this fine um so if, I think it was there's more of a level of trust and understanding between oh that sounded really really <laughs> rainbowy and smiles and lovely didn't it <laughs> if there was because I think as well it's a time thing because a lot of the workshop stuff is kind of like okay we're gonna need to get the composer in now yeah and we've got to bash yeah. through the piece we don't have enough time for this yeah because I remember we were in there all day yeah and we didn't you know we didn't do any name games no I'd, but I yeah. wouldn't I I would uh in an ideal world. In an ideal world, yeah, maybe a bit more time to, yeah. games. <laughs> That's interesting, yeah. I think it's kind of, with the no dice thing as well, I I feel a lot less comfortable writing for instruments and other people than I do writing, you know, for com- for computers or, or even, like, just <laughs> playing with my mates because it's like, sometimes when, I'm, when I think about, I say this all the time, when I think about writing for other people, and um, you get asked questions like, "Oh, what, what, what do you, what, what would you like me to play? How would you like me to play this note?" And I'm always just thinking, "I was like, I don't f- know. You're the, <laughs> you're the clarinet player. You're the one. <laughs> you know, like, I, I, which, which it seems ruder than I meant it to be. What I mean is, like, I would rather be like, "Oh, what do you think? You, you, what, how do you think this should go?" Uh, okay, um, you know, it's yeah. more of a collaborative thing. Yeah, it's how I like to write music. Mm. Um, so with the no dice thing, I think I felt very much like it was it was something I was out of practice of doing, like mm-hmm. writing for instruments. I suppose at that initial stage, though, it's you've got all the pieces in your head, but mm. the players are only just beginning to kind of chisel away at that. Yeah. And you're only actually hearing the notes, basically, at that point. Um, I wrote a piece recently for clarinet, um, for Dov of Safa. I was on one of their schemes, which was, which was really great. And um, I, like, I did no dynamics, at all because I had this idea in my head that he would interpret it it was like highly open to interpretation because it was based on Bulgarian folk music so I was like that's how I'll kind of use that strand of the oral tradition by removing some of the notation to kind of get that kind of interpretation in there but I found on the day because it's like a recording session rather than a performance so you kind of get a chance to go over the sections and I found on the day that there's more that you actually no you do want than you might think yeah or yeah. i i thought yeah and i kind of i was like oh, actually well i could have i think some dynamics would be helpful yeah. yeah 
I think that's a good rule for pieces. Put some dynamics in. Put some, yeah, it's on the checklist. Definitely. Top tip. Did you know them before you went in, though? Did you go, oh, this is what I'd want, but I'd be interested to hear how he plays it? Or did you get into that rehearsal or whatever setup it was and then realise there that you knew that you what dynamics you wanted? Um, or was it necessary to go into the rehearsal to realise the dynamics is what I mean, I suppose? I think I knew already, yeah. Yeah, and it's a similar thing with with the with that trust thing because there were we had quite a few workshops beforehand. I think we had two two workshops, uh, maybe maybe three even, and so you get a chance to know the player. Um, but even then, it's it's only short, and I don't know if that's the same building of rapport as you'd get if you'd gone through the whole process once already, like with the no dice players, where you've yeah. kind of you've done it once and you kind of you feel like you've you've got a feel for the vibe or like how people generally run their workshops there. And then kind of, if you're doing one again, you'd be like, Oh, I know that I can ask, you know, Libby what she thinks. Cause she'll just tell me straight, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. I think as, as well, it's like, cause I think it's often the case sometimes that the performers haven't ever seen the music before and they don't, they, they there's kind of in the back of my head, like and this is this isn't healthy or good but it's always like what do they think of it what do they do they do they is it is it okay do they hate it it's not even do they like it it's more like do they hate it is the problem <laughs> um yeah my but, piece was really tonal as well and it was so i felt like i was like almost like on a limb because it was oh, just yeah, so like blatantly like like i was just trying to make it like emotional basically yeah and like fun to play um so the fun to play you can kind of that's kind of its its own box in a way but it was very, yeah, very tonal, very kind of imbued with emotion. And sometimes I think if you're trying to make something emotional, that's kind of dangerous territory because you might start leaning on cliches or... Well, yeah, but I also just think there's 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 a really good... Um, yeah, you've listened to <laughs> the Meet the Composer podcast. Yeah. They've got a really good one about like 20th century composers sort of arguing about writing hyper-technical cold emotionless stuff versus writing kind of yeah the kind of stuff you were talking about and there's kind of like everyone in uh i don't want to shade in the entire composition world uh, <laughs> like there's i think there's a lot of i i feel it definitely when i'm in when i write pieces i'm a bit like oh i've maybe tried to do something that's a bit too emotional is maybe the word for it but i've actually mm. oh tried to try to have some emotion in this and it, maybe it's not not acceptable in in certain circles, but maybe that says again more about me than it does about the piece. Yeah, right. I mean, there's more to it than that. It's, it's a very, I've of... really oversimplified that debate. Completely. <laughs> I think there's, because I'm, I think the middle ground is where it works best. So I'm going to just go full plug here, but for the next No Dice concert, we're doing um, The Four Quarters by Thomas Adders. And I think that the reason it's so great is because it really hits that balance between being like, I always get, um, um uh, what's the word i overuse the word uh vivid a lot um now what do i mean i, I overuse the word visceral a lot <laughs> but it's got that quality of it feeling so like fresh yeah and it's got a kind of aliveness to it um and that's, and that's kind of like an emotion and like um, it's got an emotional quality to it because of that but i think that's very much in the perfect balance of the two i yeah. think uh, what I was concerned at was that I was leaning too much on the emotional side and that the actual taking care of like the, the cogs and making sure it was interesting and it had enough kind of stuff going on wasn't quite in balance. I think it worked out. It, it, it sounded, I, I really enjoyed the performance of it in the end, but that was kind of the thoughts going through my head at the time. Yeah. I think uh, like this kind of idea of too emotional or something like that. I think it's interesting because obviously in a in a written language context you have like cliches and yeah. we, we, especially with like love or like you just take something like love at first sight as like a cliche in a book or whatever. And I think the problem isn't with the cliche in and of itself. It's with the instance you use the cliche. Mm. So if you're thinking about if you're telling a biographical story about the person you met, you went, hey, it was love at first sight. Is it actually true? Because yeah. if it's not true, then like that cliche is being, you're, it's just a misused cliche rather than like, 
I mean, also cliches can be bad writing in most instances, but if you're using a cliche, it has to be true if you're going to use it. And then the other thing is, I think quite often, because like, I'm really bad for this because like for my own personal emotional reasons i am really mistrustful of my own emotional writing because you read something oh that's just too emotional and i don't think that's necessarily true but that will make me talk myself out of having like a <laughs> yeah. a actual like emotional relationship with my own writing which then i think probably has the someone then reads it and goes oh okay that's fine like you've expressed you've you've told me something yeah but like fine, that's not the it? real that's not the real experience you had like one of my tutors at uni now he 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 was basically telling me like i've read your piece like bits of it are really good but you're undercutting yourself you're basically mm. to give yourself permission to say what you really thought yeah, you yeah. then undercut it you keep in the exit door yeah open. so yeah. he was like stop doing that like it that bit works fine. So if you take out the bit where you undercut yourself, then like you've just got to be like, like that's how I feel. <laughs> and mm. I think sometimes, um, and the use of the word sometimes is so I can keep the exit door open. But I think sometimes that's probably like our like critical relationship with things. It's like we're mistrustful of people. Uh, art being overly emotional. Does your dad play drums? Oh, no. Like, he had a drum set, and I think when he was in theological college, he was in a, a REM cover band, hmm. which is ironic because their most famous song is Losing <laughs> My Religion. <laughs> I don't know where this fits into some sort of grander discussion of sex and gender and its representation, but I from my own personal feeling, from moment to moment, quite often I don't, um, I'm not identifying as either male or female in any instance, but of course I am a product of certain um, socialisations in different contexts, but I think in my own personal practice I always try and write into that space of uncharted territory as it were in relation to sort of identity and other things like that sometimes in terms of like my actual craft practice I find it really like unhelpful to obsess about like the certain genders because like in my own sort of reading and stuff I try and address my sort of unbalances in terms of what I'm consuming in terms of race and gender mm. but in the moment of writing itself it's like another thing that I've like got to think about and I try and not think about it in the instance of the writing itself but then go on to then possibly like if it's a certain like I don't tend to write descriptions of people specifically but to say I was to write a description of a female character I would then in sort of after having written it go oh maybe I've described that character in a bit of a misogynistic way or mm. in a bit of an obvious way um and I don't, I don't know if that's helpful in any sort of way but I was just thinking in terms of this idea because it's something I think about a lot in terms of when I'm listening I was listening to a podcast recently and they were talking about this group of women they were saying this is a female experience and it was something to do with an anxiety about a particular subject not very helpful i can't remember what that subject is i do this all the time but, though, um, <laughs> but when i was listening to it i was like i feel that anxiety as well sure and i yeah. sometimes wonder whether like certain reactions to things are to do with like i feel that as well but now i feel like i can't feel that because i'm not part of that group that's stereotypically been socialized in that way and then i've got to think about like my own personal experience like i've got three sisters i've got a mum that was where like i grew up in a household that was completely female so mm. it's not out of the question that i've received a lot of this um what would stereotypically be like female like socialization and so like to go back to the craft in the craft process i try and obviously there's no way of being genderless in that instance i'm still writing from my personal mm. hand while i'm yeah. writing the words your own down, point but, of view yeah but i try and write it as unconsciously as 
possible and then come back with the critical eye and go maybe there's a better way of doing that in terms of gender there's also on like the gender there's a good podcast i think the bbc produce it called nb and it's about um the um this person exploring being non-binary i think and oh that's yeah quite i a started good, that yeah that's quite a good podcast Flakes float out of the sky. Almost too light to fall. drunk up by the wind. So back to the bells. Oh, the bells. Ah, right. uh, <laughs> oh, the bells. Uh, the bells. Yeah. Yes. So, so you, you'd, you'd written the piece. So you kind of had this spectral idea. Yeah. And you were, um, you'd had your first workshop. Yeah. Um, how was that process working with Greg? And we'll do it the other way around as well. Because <laughs> we, we've done a few of these writing collaborations. And the first one, we, we tried one where the writer works first and then the composer gets it. and then the, Or one where the composer writes first and then the writer gets it. And then we did one which was at the same time and um, they all basically came out as the writer writes it first <laughs> um, so that's kind of what we stuck with with this so you you, you received what Greg had written was mm -hmm. that were you kind of being referred to during that period or I think there wasn't that much of a consultation process I think because um, you wrote you wrote a draft and then sent it over and I was like great <laughs> <laughs> Um, and that was like a start, was it? You kind of, oh, this is what it's going to be about. And now I can yeah. start thinking about it. So I think if I remember rightly, we did discuss the kinds of things that would go into it. And we came up with some. Mm. Oh, no. Do you want to talk about the questionnaire thing? I, I can do. Yeah. So <laughs> earlier, so we did the work, first workshop where we met each other and everyone met each other and did the sort of writing stuff. Uh, and then after that, I sort of sent a bunch of silly questions uh, to David about different <laughs> Christmas stuff and apocalypse stuff. So the you questions... Gave him a BuzzFeed article. Uh, yeah, basically. What's your Christmas apocalypse? <laughs> well, so one of the questions was, what's your favourite like genre type of end of the world? Um, and I got some really good answers and they did inform what I wrote. Sort of. I've forgotten all my answers, actually. So your favourite type of end of the world is kind of like nuclear because like things mutate oh and oh yeah stuff. the so margaret like, margaret atwood margaret um, atwood adventure not, time yeah adventure time margaret <laughs> atwood not um not handmaid's tale she's got a series called mad adam mm. which is all like kind of like science post-apocalypse mm. so like it's kind of like a techno apocalypse which is quite cool yeah and you also had the road in there which was about like oh, you, you kind of focused on the father-son relationship i um, was trying to think of this film earlier Oh yeah, have you right. seen the film of it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, bleakest thing. Yeah, ever. totally bleak. And also, Viggo Mortensen has a tiny little tail. <laughs> that well, who's Viggo? Viggo Mortensen. He played Aragon. He's a dad. Oh, he's got a tail. He's naked in the film. There's a little vestigial. It was really, a long time ago. This is really rude. I think I blanked I out the memory of his naked I body. I don't want to object. That's not cut this. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then like what's your favourite Christmas songs I had on there what's your favourite part of Christmas Day uh, have you got any more answers uh, so favourite part of Christmas Day was watching your nieces and nephews uh, open presents that's sickening did oh, I say that's that? so yeah, wholesome disgusting no wonder you wrote such a tonal piece <laughs> <laughs> yeah softy that's <laughs> exactly it that's what we were talking about Joe <laughs> tonality shaming <laughs> And then favourite Christmas songs was things like uh, Christmas in L.A. by Vol... Christmas in L.A. Wolfpack, yeah. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Which is weird because... All the little babies are Christmas in L.A. Sorry, go on. Uh, no, it, well, uh, the get killers... The drum, get out. <laughs> the killers have loads of great Christmas songs and one of theirs is Christmas in L.A. Huh? So that'd be... Ah. But, um, oh, well, uh, so, much, so, so much wine was in there. Sorry, just a great song. Yeah, yeah. By the Handsome Family. Ah. Uh -huh. Um... They're a great band. Very funny, gothic and dark. 
I feel like the the bleakest Christmas songs are the best in a way, aren't mm. they? Which is why we wrote this one. Yeah, <laughs> in a long lineage of. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think um, the the reason that is is because like Christmas is both like such a it's both extremes in mm, one instance. It's so polarizing. Yeah. So I think that lends itself to doing something that both explores really exciting vibrant christmas lights and that mm. kind of stuff and then also the complete flip side it works well for that tension so i think that in my theory why the bleakest christmas songs are the best ones are because like that tension's inherent in the day itself in the bleak midwinter yeah one of the best again one of the, one best. Of the best yeah I suppose, yeah, because you, you've got, like, the really dark words and they don't really... There's not much light in them. <laughs> there's, like, there's like one stanza where it's like, and then he saw a friend. It's like, ah, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. Because uh, no, did, it never happened. This is what he thought happened. It didn't happen. <laughs> but you've got the bells. So you kind of... You've got this, like, yeah. sparkly... Yeah. So what I was... Kind what? of got two and one in that song. Like, my big song. inspiration for this was actually the soundtrack to The Road. Oh, which okay. is by Nick Cave. Oh, okay. And um, Warren Ellis. And I think Nick Cave is very good at writing things that are very bleak and uh -huh, very yeah. horrible and angsty, but also very beautiful things. So the mm. first track on the first track on that um, soundtrack, it just, I think it has like a really long clarinet note and then a kind of a twinkly, what do you call the Celeste? Is it where you, you press it? and then The bell piano. Bell piano, yeah, yeah it's Celeste. got a Celeste on it. And that's um, really lovely and nice, but has kind of a background bleakness to it, which is what I was trying to do. Mm. Yeah, and I suppose the music was kind of quite nice in a lot of senses. Apart from there was that bit where the bells get very loud. It's just like Christmas. It's just like Christmas. It's just like Christmas. It's just like Christmas. It's like you're trying to push through like all the bleakness, and you've got all the bells like they're they kind of, they're kind of like the happy ingredient, if you'll allow me, like of the of the the piece, and they're kind of all bashing away, and like you're trying to kind of really, it's like that inner human spirit in the apocalypse. You're trying to kind of you're trying to kind of be okay, and you're trying to feel yeah like happy because it's Christmas, and you you've got tradition in there. That was definitely part of part of the. The idea behind it that kind of the bells to some extent represent the idealistic Christmas that the person in this mm. piece that Greg wrote is trying to have. Yeah. Quite a few people, I sent quite a few people to write in to see what they thought and how I should say it. And they were like, it's that guy Jesus. So it's Jesus, right? Jesus comes out of the smoke. Jesus. That's what I thought <laughs> when I read it. Yeah. But Greg, apparently that wasn't part of... Your well, well, actually, not Jesus. Person. I thought he was Father Christmas. Oh, I thought like he just popped down Same on his thing, sleigh, right? down from his, you know, Lapland, no, no apocalypse wasteland in Lapland. <laughs> they got it sorted. <laughs> um, I think really they were just supposed to be like archetypically untouched by the apocalypse, and this person's essentially because they're sort of fiddling with, like they have a Christmas cracker, and really they just think like, ah, oh, this is someone I can pull a Christmas cracker with and they happen not to have like tumours all over their body mm. and be seem to be untouched by any apocalypse that's happened. And I think in some ways that does fulfil some sort of messianic um, archetype. So I understand why that interpretation happened, um, but I didn't write it being Jesus or Santa Claus or anyone like that. Yeah, um, the two... I, Biggest Christmas apocalypse protagonist, I would argue. <laughs> Big um, in the game. Big in the game. <laughs> I think Jesus and Sansa. <laughs> what was there kind of unconsciously is possibly this is who the person was pre apocalypse. That yeah, kind of interesting. Um because a lot of the the piece is about sort of reliving rituals in a sort of more degradated context so they're still putting up tinsel but in this case the tinsel is their hair that's fallen out because of the radiation so gross so grim <laughs> <laughs> but but they're they're still doing the rituals without the kind of nice tinsel as it were yeah, yeah. so then it it's like almost a remembrance through performance or through ritual mm. and in some ways that kind of evokes or 
calls upon this dreamlike version of a past self, I suppose. Which is why I think the out of tuners of the bells works quite well because mm. it's always a bit like, oh, something's not quite right here. Mm. And I remember in when I had this idea that when when the the Jesus figure kind of appeared, that I would get everyone to do this this like huge, beautiful, pure, justly intoned chord in a kind of like a slightly um biblical way i think but then have the bells come back and have it going back to like being slightly out of tune also because the bells are i only found this out from catherine bloomer recently the clarinetist that like i remember i said to her like oh i feel bad for making everyone everyone retune to play the beat you like we just didn't retune and i was like oh. <laughs> explains oh, a lot i didn't even know, <laughs> i didn't even notice i never really thought i never really thought of them as particularly out of tune uh they're just like they, they're just bells, you know, kind of yeah. bells are kind of inherently out of tune because all the overtones that you were talking about earlier, they're all of a, the harmonic series, which kind of rounds off. Yeah. I mean, there is, I think they're pretty much the average out to exactly a quarter tone out. So I was like, <laughs> I've got, I've got to sort that out because that's the worst, <laughs> possibly the worst kind of out of tune you can have. Yeah. But it worked out in the end. I didn't, I didn't know if... <laughs> on the notes very dark is this normal <laughs> you, mean, you mean normal this, for me is this, is this healthy is this definitely not healthy very normal um um i think yes is the honest answer what i'd like to think uh is there is a bit of uh, like hope in like i mainly go for dark stuff that has like a teeny bit of hope in it mm. i hope um <laughs> But yeah, mm. I think as I suppose like from a philosophical perspective, I kind of like the stuff where metaphorically speaking, you're in the dirt, but you're like, oh, we're okay, sort of thing. Though I suppose this guy's got tumours and his teeth are falling out, his hair's falling out, so pretty um, bleak for him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> pretty, pretty bleak. Um, but it's kind of about coping, I think, in some ways, um, and the way people you use coping mechanisms. Hmm. Is it kind of semi-autobiographical then, in a way? Obviously, you're not drawing, yeah, pulling I, your hair out, <laughs> and, uh, drawing trees in the in the dust. I'd say, like, I'm very interested um, to be sort of that boring person. I'm very interested in sort of the work of Joseph Campbell and Jung, and they talk a lot about like archetypical story structure. Um, so, um, and they and archetypal people. So, in that sense, I try and write into sort of archetypes hopefully in a way that isn't too boring but in a way that helps me make sense of life so for instance in this it's in three parts the first part is just sort of establishing the wasteland and the wasteland is a tried and tested trope of a lot of literature um and then the second part is about establishing the routine of that of the protagonist in the piece and then the third section is disrupting that it's kind of pretty basic three three structure points sort of messed up a bit um and it kind of places you in that archetype like i suppose the autobiographical biographical nature is that kind of using coping mechanisms to um provoke a nostalgic version of yourself and as i learned from playing crossy roads on the um fire tv the other day like you have to kind of deal with sorry what Cro crossy Road, do you not know playing what Crossy Roads on the Fire TV? Fire, fire Stick. <laughs> on the, uh, Amazon Fire Stick. Yeah, on the Amazon Fire Stick. No, yeah. I don't know what that is either. It's, what, it's, like, it's, it's just like a smart you plug TV it into sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, it makes your TV smart. You plug, oh, okay. plug it in. And it has a game which is called Crossy Roads. It's just okay. like you have. Is that like Frogger? Like Frogger. Like when you yeah, cross the road. Yeah, you're, but cross you're, a, you're not a frog. Yeah. And there's one called The Crossing Dead where you also have guns and the zombies trying to get you. Like like The Walking Dead. Yeah, like The Walking Dead. But you're playing Frogger. Yeah, basically. And what I learned from that, the very important lesson that you can only get from Crossy Roads is that you have to sort of like work with what's actually going on rather than what your expectations are of what's going on. So I just continually walk under cars on this game because I was like, oh, well, I'm expecting it to be there where it wasn't. Oh, okay. It was closer to me. And so when you're talking about like what's in front of you, you're talking about the archetype. Yeah, so in, in the context of this piece, this character is behaving in a way that is of 
before the apocalypse and they've continued to behave that way to cope with the like the this really underrates it but like the stress of being in an apocalypse so they've just carried on doing pre-apocalyptic activities mm. and that's not really dealing with the situation that's not like um that's he's not dealing with what's in front of him he's dealing with what's this like nostalgic view of the world i suppose yeah um, but i suppose he can't he can't really accept the world as it is can he yeah and i and i and i tried to write it in a way where there's like no judgment of that and i really like i feel like that's what i try and take out of first drafts often is like a judgment of the characters or like myself within a piece that i've written um because i don't think that necessarily i don't think that serves a lot of art not to say that there isn't good judgmental art because there definitely is but um i try and take that judgment out and then put it in a podcast retrospectively Well, that's the end of our discussion about Carol for Our Children by Greg and David. And we're going to play it in just a second. Um, just to say thank you so much to David and Greg for chatting to me. It was really good fun and we had a good time. There were lots of uh, conversations I had to edit out in order to keep this a reasonable length and not to bore you with all the fun we were having. If you want to check out more of David's work, I've linked his website in the podcast description. And I've also linked to Greg's Twitter page if you want to hear about what he's up to. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, If you did, please give us a a like or a subscribe or whatever it is you do. I don't actually have an Apple device, so I don't really know how iTunes works like that. But it's really important for uh, people finding us, apparently. It only really recommends podcasts that other people have already rated and, and reviewed. So if you'd help us get the word out to other classical music podcast listeners i'd really appreciate that and seeing as we're just getting going if you could share it with your friends i'm sure they'd love it i hope anyway here we go here is carol for our children by david mcfarlane gregory kearns and i'll see you next time when we talk to adam and reiki of manchester collective In the morning I open my card, I make Christmas dinner, prepare the turkey.
wrapped on a spike. I cut the tumours out, put seasoning on, and by seasoning I mean I close my eyes and imagine it's turning. I break the tiny wishbone by myself, close my eyes and wish for someone else to pull a crap of me, someone to read me the silly jokes. In the evening I walk my Christmas home. It's just like Christmas. It's just like Christmas. It's just like Christmas. It's just like Christmas. I see a man trudge out of the fog in the semi-distance. His chest broad, his hair long, matted and shining. His skin is tumorous, wishbone wish granted perhaps. I gather the Christmas paraphernalia, all the things meant for sharing, and I bring them to this stranger. Lift my prized Christmas cracker. It takes the weight of two hands pulling in the opposite direction, the cardboard stretching and breaking and the... Complete it. 